So back in 2006 or seven, uh, when we still lived in Trujillo, Peru, I bought a house. And uh, I looked at, I'd been looking for a house for a while. And so I had my eye on this one. I was really excited when I could buy it. I mean, it was perfect, perfect. And I bought a pastoral house for the church in Arevalo, and some of you know that neighborhood. And uh, it was located in the neighborhood. It was on a corner. It was just a block away from the church. It was two-story, this solid concrete house. It was kept up. It was clean. It was well-painted. It was this bright terracotta color. I mean, it stood out. It popped in the neighborhood. I loved it. People could readily find it if they wanted to talk to the pastor. The floor plan was efficient. It was convenient for a family of four or five people. This open living space for hospitality. The price was reasonable. It was a two-story, three-bedroom, two-bath house for $18,500. So I felt so good. I was stewarding our mission resources well and setting the church up for the long haul. And so I bought it. I felt good about it. The pastor and his family moved in for about 10 years. They made it their home and they did ministry out of the house. They were hospitable. I loved visiting with them. Wife's an awesome cook. But then 2017 came. And in 2017, El Nino came to Peru as it does periodically. But this El Nino year was particularly intense. El Nino is when the currents change and all this and an area of the world that gets a half an inch of rain a year all of a sudden gets a deluge for them and dry riverbeds flow with water. However, in 2017, the water didn't just stay in the riverbeds, they overflowed the riverbeds and they picked up steam coming down the mountains and they flooded neighborhoods and they built up uh, mudslides. And so you had this two or three feet of mud that swept through the downtown of Trujillo, filling houses up two or three feet. It was devastating, a national emergency, a death toll, so tough, financial losses, businesses closed. And so even though this pastoral house I love so much was bought far away from a riverbed, one in a flood zone, it was full of two or three feet of water and mud. And when this happened, something happened that I never would have dreamed happened. Something happened that it didn't happen to the surrounding houses that didn't look as good as my house. This great crack appeared and it stretched from one supporting column all the way to the other supporting column. And the pastor looked at it with his family in that house and he got worried, as he should have, anxious. He went and got a builder to check it out and the builder came back and said, you need to get out of this house. It's not stable. It didn't have foundations adequate for what just happened. It needs to be condemned. If Mark Watson was that builder, he just said, don't walk, run. That's Mark's line. Don't walk, run, get away from that house. So evidently the prior owners who built the house scrimped on costs. They cut costs. They didn't dig down deep enough in that sand to set a solid foundation. They assumed or gambled that their house was too far away from the flood zone to ever encounter that kind of trial. 
So it just wasn't built to handle El Nino flood. It was exposed as a fraud. It wasn't what it appeared to be on the outside. And so in our passage, our passage is a strong passage today. But it's a word of grace because the warnings in Scripture, because today is the day of salvation, and because Jesus has provided everything we need, they're also a gospel word for us. So let's read God's word, Luke 6, 46. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood rose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. And the grass withers and the flowers fade And this good word, it endures forever. Thanks be to God. So I have two points naturally arise from this little passage. First is Jesus' question. And the second is Jesus' illustration. The question and the illustration both deal with the same danger. And both urge a real response. not just from the crowd that attended Jesus' sermon, but through Luke's recounting of it, they urge a response in God's providential dealing with us on us today. So Jesus' question. So similar to Matthew's version, remember Matthew and Luke have a version of the Sermon on the Mount, we call Luke's the Sermon on the Plain. Luke records Jesus culminating his Sermon on the Plain with this penetrating question. I mean, a disturbing question question. And the question is, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I mean, what a question. Uh, I mean, the point is that each of us needs to let that sink in. We're, We're to imagine Jesus like visiting with us in our pews today, since he's our real worship leader, walking through the pews, coming up to us and asking us, you know, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Like, this week I've been imagining him coming around, putting his arm around me, and I don't think he's standing over me, right? He's our mediator putting his arm around me and saying look at me in the eyes come on Bill why do you call me Lord Lord and not do what I tell you to do why do you profess allegiance to me with your mouth but don't put into practice what I tell you to do why do you confess me with your lips and do so publicly and contradict me with your life 
So R.C. Sproul calls Matthew's version of this one of the most terrifying passages of Scripture. Alistair Begg says of Luke's version, this question searches my heart more than any question Jesus asks that's recorded in all the Gospels. So a little prompt in your devotions. Why don't you search your heart with that question? So isn't that the case, though? It's a penetrating question for us. Asking such a question is even rhetorically, emotionally more forceful than Jesus simply coming up and saying, you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say. I mean, the question is, is more emotive. Like it, it gets to us more. It's meant to. Rhetorically, it just rattles us. is to say, like, why don't you think my thoughts after me? Why don't you say my words? Why don't you do the things I command you to do? So Matthew applies his version of the question first to false teachers. So if you read Matthew's version, he has false teachers foremost on his mind. He applies it to us too, but... Foremost, he's applying it to false teachers and saying, you know, there's some folks that are doing miracles and are teaching, they're prophets, and they go before Jesus, and Jesus says, I never knew you. And so we need to be careful about our false teachers. But see, Luke, remember what we've said is Luke, his version of Jesus' sermon is he applies it directly to us, directly to his audience. He's admonishing self-examination, this, this healthy introspection. To, to assess our thoughts and intents and motives of our hearts, to assess the way we use our tongues, what we talk about, the content, the way we speak, to assess our actions, what we do. And, he, and he's pushing us to look at your, your mind, your, your, your affections, and your, your, your deeds. So Jeremy passed along a snippet from Sproul's book, and Sproul's book, Sproul has a little book um, called Can I Be Sure I'm Saved? And so another prayer request this week, in addition to everything else Jeremy's got going on, he's teaching a seminar. He's teaching a seminar on assurance of salvation. Fundamental, you know. How do we arrive at assurance? So let's be praying for Jeremy as he serves the, the young people that way. But really interesting that, that Sproul begins a 33-page book on assurance of salvation with this passage that is so rattling to assurance of salvation, right? And, and what he's saying is, you know, if, if we're, God wants you to be assured that you belong to him. And he's given you sufficient information in his word that you can say, I belong to Christ. And part of that is to get rid of your false assurance of salvation. It's to get rid of that presumption we have that, that we could just think everything's okay because we live in a society that's just generally speaking optimistic. Like if you go to other countries of the world, you know, they're just not optimistic. Like we think everything is going to generally be okay. And that seeps into the minds and hearts of men, women, boys, and girls to where they look at their future and they go, well, it's just all going to work out. And so amazingly, they can be experts in their field 
dig in, study incredible amounts of time and everything, but they just don't even actually consider the claims of Christ or their spiritual life because we just think everything's going to work out okay. But, but Jesus is helping us clear away that to dig down to say, okay, I, I really want to be assured of my salvation. So Sproul offers a really helpful insight here when in the question, when Jesus comes around you and puts his arm around you and says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? You know, that Lord, Lord is emphatic. It's a motive. And what I like about Sproul, he says, about, it only occurs about 15 times in all of scripture that somebody would, would use evocative, would actually call somebody by name personally and actually double it up, use it twice in a pair. And so, you know, we can think of various passages in Scripture, like, for example, Genesis 22, Abraham has got Isaac on the altar with wood. And he's got this knife poised, and he's about to come down on his son. And at that moment, God says, Abraham, Abraham. And we think of Moses, you know, the backside of nowhere for 40 years and he sees this burning bush and he goes up to the burning bush and he, he's baffled by the bush and from within the bush, Yahweh calls him Moses, Moses. Or we think of Jesus. In a few chapters, we're going to be talking about Mary and Martha and Jesus looks at Martha, poor Martha, just trying to do good. I sympathize so much. He's so busy trying to make everything right. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha. Or think of Jesus on the cross. Darkness has set in and he's feeling the baseline depth of hell. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the doubling up in the Hebrew mindset was a way of personal address that, that emphasized intimate relationship with the person to whom you're speaking. You know, there's a relationship going on. And so Jesus is coming around us and he's saying, you're talking to me that way. Like these aren't outsiders, y'all. These are insiders. These are folks that look like faithful believers. You know, Keller in his Upside Down Kingdom article, which I like so much, he talks about a middle-class ethic. <laughs> and you see, a middle-class ethic can look like a Christian ethic from the outside. I mean, we're industrious. We get up in the morning, we go to bed at night, we take care of our families, we're community-minded, we're involved in the institutions of our local city, and I want all that from every one of us. But if that's where it stops, it's still hollow, it's still superficial, it's and yet, sin is so deceptive that we, like Calvin, in, he writes a defense of the Reformation. It's called The Necessity of Reforming the Church. And it's a wonderful little book. But I remember years ago, encountering this little phrase that, that leveled me, he goes, men and women will submit to whatever constraint on their external performance as you give them, provided you don't take their heart. And think about your life. You'll submit to whatever. But don't, t don't 
Don't mess with my heart. And Jesus is saying, watch out for that sin tendency to guard your heart from me. And you can think that you're in some kind of close relationship with me and you can come to that conclusion, but really you're not, you're not. And so be warned of that presumption. Be warned of that today, each of us. Not in a morbid, anxiety-ridden way, because that's not how God works, but he works by his spirit to convict us and draw us to himself. Like the, the effect of the sermon is not to go home and cower in a corner and wonder if I'm elect. That's not, that's not the point of this passage. It's, it's to say, Jesus says things like that as a work of grace to draw you to me with your heart. So Jesus asked this question to a bunch of day laborers who've taken off of work, who buy their food at the end of the day. So it's an effort, it cost them. They're sympathetic to him. They're interested in the upside down kingdom and yet he warns them. He warns them. At a minimum, when we say, Lord, Lord, we recognize Jesus' authority. Um, we don't, this probably isn't the full-blown confession of the church. The basic confession of the church after Jesus' resurrection is, Jesus is Lord, right? Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. I mean, that's, Jesus is Yahweh because you rose from the dead. Now, probably not at that level at this point. However, the church would have received it that way once it was preached. But Lord, this word Lord was also used as a title of respect. But here it's probably at least you're an authoritative teacher, prophet of God, and I'm going to hear your words and obey what you have to say. And so Jesus is saying, well, if you call me Lord, if you call me your respected rabbi, why are you just listening to me and not doing what I say to do? At least you ought to be doing that. If that's who I am, why don't you obey me? It's not just enough to be sympathetic to me, to acknowledge me, to hear my words, to listen to my sermon. The whole point of a sermon is to put in practice. A sermon is never an end. This is not an end. This is a means to an end, which is taking it in and engaging with Christ, really. So Jesus is especially, when he says, why don't you do what I tell you to do, he's thinking about what he's already said in his sermon, in his upside-down kingdom sermon. And so we can think of questions. You know, it, it's kind of been a helpful exercise to me to imagine the other questions that come along with this question. Things like, why are you controlled by riches and or power, hunger or comfort, laughing or success, approval? You know, that's the Beatitudes. Why are you controlled by these rather than what my kingdom prizes? I mean, I've told you a portrait of a child of God as one who prizes poverty and hunger and weeping and exclusion. Why aren't those your heart's values? Why don't you discern the benefit of those when they come to you? Why does life implode when those come to you? Why aren't you willing to endure those for my sake? Why don't you gravitate towards people that are experiencing those? Like grace always goes downhill. It moves towards those in need. Why don't you? Um, why don't you love your enemies? Why don't you, why do you just love those who love you? Why aren't you more, more merciful? You know, that's kind of how he ends it up. 
Why aren't lost people more on your mind and heart? Why don't you have more bandwidth for lost people? Why am I more concerned about what's going to happen in my life this week than I am for the church in Ukraine? I mean, what does that say about me? You know, the, the upside-down kingdom operates differently. Um, why are you so judgmental? Like, why do you arm a defense so quickly? Why do you magnify others' faults and minimize your own faults? Why, why don't you... Why isn't your heart's treasure me? Like, why do you have other heart's treasures that rival me? Where does your mind go when you don't have to think about anything? Like, where do I daydream? What do I, what do I fantasize about? You know, what, what occupies my mind? And it gets really disturbing at that point. But that's the question. All those questions are underneath it. Like, why? You call me Lord. Because that's, cool. that's a question. That's hard enough. Now let's go to the illustration. So Jesus presses the point even more here. He gives a word picture to show the folly of just hearing Jesus' words without internalizing them, without taking them to heart. He compares and contrasts two times the people. Both of them come to him, hear his words. One does them and one does not do them. It's a lordship test. Doing them entails thinking, speaking, and acting. So Jesus speaks of two builders. Now notice, there are two men who are building a house. Neither of those men is not building a house. So we're always building a house. So young people, do you recognize you're always building your house? And the house is your life. So Proverbs 24, I love. By wisdom a house is built, by understanding its rooms are established, by knowledge its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. Awesome. Proverbs 24, memorize it. You're building your house. Furthermore, there are not three or four or five houses. You know, in our pluralistic culture, we want to do things a bunch of different ways, a bunch of different mixes on things. There's two. There's one or the other here. Notice how the builders are similar. Both desire a house to live in. It's a good desire to have a house. They want comfort, security, a place to call home, a place to belong. Both houses look essentially the same from the outside. They're dirt houses. They look the same. My house looked the same, better than other houses. Both are in the same area by a riverbed and subject to the same weather conditions. They're in the same world. Both have to face a flood. They have to endure a river breaking out against them. So what you see about these builders and their houses is the same. Again, that house I bought looked great. Everyone's building the house of their lives, and from the outside, from appearances, we look similar. We eat, we sleep, we spend time with our families, we go to work, we interact in society. We have a lot of similarities with everybody. But Jesus says there's this pivotal distinction in these builders and their houses, and this distinction is decisive, and it makes all the difference. It's not just a nuance. It's a fundamental distinction. The, the one man digs deep. I love that. He digs deep. And so young people going to RYM, would you have that word picture in your mind? I'm going to dig deep. And would we have that picture in our minds? I'm digging deep here. He digs deep and he lays his foundation on the rock. So when the flood comes, and come it will. When the river beats against the house, it doesn't shake it because it's well built. Now, the other man just builds his house on the ground without a foundation, without exerting the effort to do what can't be seen. He doesn't dig deep. He doesn't lay his foundation on the rock. He doesn't expend the energy. He doesn't take the time. He doesn't exert the cost. 
He just wants to do what's visible, what's seen, what's noticed. So when the flood comes and the river beats against the house and come it will, it immediately caves in and becomes a great ruin. All is lost, it's washed away. Two houses, apparently the same, radically different. So Jesus is coming alongside us, our big brother. He's a good big brother. Comes alongside us, exhorting us to dig deep. He says, please don't just hear my words. Put them into practice. He says, don't just say I'm your Lord and build your life the way you want to. Make me your Lord in truth. The flood's going to come. See, Matthew's version, the flood is the end time judgment. So you remember back in the tornadoes in 2014, we organized a prayer service at Fair Park. So I got a bunch of pastors together and we went to Fair Park and we prayed and, you know, people were pretty sensible to the need for prayer that week. And I remember Pastor Landon Dowden, I remember Pastor Landon, friend of our church, and his prayer just got me right here. And he goes, Father, may this storm wake us up to the greater storm coming. And you see, temporal judgments are a mercy because they wake us up to our need and our dependence. And we need Jesus because there's a greater storm coming. And that's the flood of God's judgment at the end time. We want that kind of flood if it has that spiritual benefit in my life. And so really, although we look at this, we say, oh no, a hard thing is gonna come in this person's life. We're also saying, may that hard thing come to save him from the final judgment. Two stories this past week. Played an FCA golf tournament in Corinth on this past week. Andrew and I did, and this uh, this lady gave her testimony, and we appreciate FCA in our community. And so, she says when she was in high school, uh, a speaker talked one day and, and talked about like oftentimes they're just talking about things you do and don't, but this day the speaker got there and really talked about what a believer is, like sin and Jesus' work. And she was pricked. She felt like the room was dark and there was a spotlight on her. And he, that, that she felt exposed. Everybody was just looking at her. I mean, so she knew God was dealing with her, but she put it off for a week. The only thing is she went back the next week and it all happened again. And she couldn't stop. She knew God was calling her. And she knew something at that point. She knew something. She's telling us years later, but she knew something that God was telling her you're about to have to give control of your life away. I'm about to enter your life and be your boss. She knew what God was asking her to do, that faith meant surrendering her life to Him. That's what Jesus is saying in reality, you know, that we're giving our life to Him. This past week, well, two weeks ago, last time I visited with Miss Virginia, and so I'm sitting in her room with she and Linda, her daughter. It was really sweet. And so she was a little bit confused at this moment. 99 years old. At the gates of glory. And she's a little bit confused. But she looks at me and then she looks at Linda. She's seeking some affirmation, but really she's wanting to assert something. And Miss Virginia goes... We are the Lord's. 
We are the Lord's. We are the Lord's. I'm looking at Miss Virginia saying, I want to be saying that at that moment. Like, I, know I'm, you know, I know I belong to him. He's my Lord as he, as he ushers me through the doorway of death and leads me to Jesus' presence. And, and that's the invitation here to us today. Because really, the one speaking is not just calling us to a, a high standard. The one speaking is the king of the kingdom who came expressly to accomplish the standard for us. Like, he says, build your house on the rock, but then he's saying, no, don't, I am the rock. I'm, I'm about to take the storm for you. The seas have lifted up, O oh Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice, mightier than the thunders of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea. I'm taking that for you because I'm going to stand into the storm of God's judgment and shield you from it such that by faith in me, I am your solid house and you're not going anywhere. You will not be shaken. You will not fall down. You will endure and flourish into eternity. Don't you see that? And he's calling us. He's calling you here today to give your life to him. And as you know him, you know it's always a a greater giving of our life to Christ. And if you don't know him, he's, he's calling you. He's saying, would you rest and rely upon me? I am your rock. I, I am your redeemer. I am your solid house. And I came expressly to take your sin and to give you the standard. I'm not just preaching. I'm going to do what I'm preaching on your behalf because I know you can do it. And in Christ, we're declared righteous. And we're motivated by the power of the Spirit to start practicing, start practicing looking a little bit more like Christ in our lives. And that's what he calls us to. May it be the case. Amen. Let's stand.